We are continuing our series this morning in the book of Acts. So if you can open up your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 13. We have a long portion this morning. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 43 in a few moments. But the title of our message today is a work that you will, parentheses, not believe. It is actually reference to a text that you'll find in the passage this morning. A work that you will not believe. Acts chapter 13, starting with verse 13. <clears throat> well, sometimes the obvious is the most difficult to see. I'm not just talking about people who have poor eyesight like myself. I'm talking about familiarity, all right? It's said that familiarity breeds contempt. But we may also say this, familiarity can also breed blindness as well. Perhaps you know what I mean. You've been driving the same route to work, maybe to church, to school, to the doctor for years. And then one day, out of the blue, you see something for the first time. I never saw that sign there. I never saw that tree. I never saw that fire hydrant. Even though it has been there for years, it has never, ever moved. Well, I drove by this middle school this past week. It was on Thursday. And I was just driving by. I said, I've never seen that flagpole. That, that's like a 30, 40 foot flagpole. I've been coming to the school for 11 years and I have never seen that flagpole right there in the front of the school. How could that be? And then I drove around the corner and I saw another flagpole. I'm like, they're like popping out all over the place, flagpoles. I'm like, maybe, maybe you've been there. Maybe it's not flagpoles, but you know, you're looking for a new car, you're right. Or you bought a new car, then suddenly everyone is driving your car, right? Or everyone is wearing your new pair of shoes. It's amazing. You see for the first time. See, the reality is sometimes we can dismiss, we can ignore the obvious in such a way that if you were asked, you would deny the existence of the very obvious thing. You know what? I think... We can do that with God and the great work of the gospel as well. See, there's something that I believe God wants you, wants me, wants us to see this morning. It's the road signs. It's the flagpoles which he has planted in history and in his word which point us to his great work, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a work that we can too easily miss even in our own lives. But the Apostle Paul this morning is going to help us see this great work in his very sermon, a sermon which God inspired him to give and for Luke to record for us in Acts 13. So before we dig into the text this morning, let us pray. Let us pray that God would give us eyes to see. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord, I'm just recalling the day when you fitted me with contact lenses. It had been three years of driving. And what I didn't know at the time, that I was missing the road signs. I could not read the road signs. And then I still recall that day many years ago when I put on those contacts for the first time and I drove. And I could see things that I had never seen before. They had always been there, but I hadn't seen them. To read them for the first time. To look in the mirror for the first time and see my complexion like I'd never seen it before. Oh, Lord. That visual acuity, that clarity. Lord, I'm asking for that this morning for us. That you give us eyes to see even that which might be very familiar to us. That we would see this work and we would call it great. That we would see it for what it is. The great work of the gospel. That we would see and that we would believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week in our sermon, in our text, we read of Paul and Barnabas. If you recall, power encounter with Elimas, the magician, and the evil opposition that they faced on the island of Cyprus. Well, this week we're going to be traveling about 150 miles by sea to Asia Minor, what is now called the country of Turkey. And they're going to land at a place called Antioch of Pisidia, not to be confused with Antioch of Syria, from which they launched and began this first missionary journey. So with that in mind, we pick up with Acts chapter 13. I'll read verses 13 and 14. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Let me pause there. Right off the bat, we notice a couple of things. John, or John Mark, leaves Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey. We're not told why, but the seriousness of this will be manifest a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 15. You could say that church planning has had an early first casualty, so to speak. But God isn't done with John Mark yet, but we'll get there later. But it doesn't get any easier. I want to look at a map now on the screen there to take a look at this portion of the journey. As you can see there, they've gone from Cyprus, the big arrow there, to Perga, close to the seashore there in the Mediterranean. After this, Paul and Barnabas go on without John Mark, and they travel about 100 miles through pretty rugged, mountainous territory to the city of Antioch. Antioch was an important Roman colony. Well, why'd they go there, of all places? Well, we don't know for sure. We can speculate. First of all, I don't want to dismiss the Holy Spirit was leading them. But was there any other reasons? Well, it's speculation, but if you recall, in their journey to Cyprus, there was the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus, who converted to Christianity. It could be that this Roman had family connections in Antioch, this very important Roman colony. 
It could be simply that Antioch just lied westward of where Paul was from, the territory or province of Sicilia, Cilicia, excuse me. And this was simply a natural westward expansion from where Paul grew up and had ministered as well. We don't know for sure. But whatever the case, here in Antioch, there weren't just Gentiles and Roman citizens. There were. There were also Jewish, a large Jewish population as well. And as was their custom, or will be their custom, Paul and Barnabas head first to the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. We read that in verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Set the stage. What we're about to read in verses 16 and following. We'll read that in a moment. But to set the stage, what we have here in this text is Paul's very first recorded synagogue sermon. It's an evangelistic message on his first missionary journey. In other words, Paul's about to make a major statement near the beginning of his new mission. And what he says here is really probably going to inform what he's going to say in a few months later when he writes back to the church, to the Galatians. That may have been those residing in Antioch of Pisidia. So here we are, Paul and Barnabas, poised in the synagogue. I remember in grade school, we used to have what was called VIP days. Very important person days, okay? And what I remember was, you got to wear a yellow badge. It said VIP. Did any of you have that, by the way? Only one here. This is a California thing. Ashley, thank you, from Chicago. Okay, maybe Midwest, too. Okay. Well, it was a big deal. You were the VIP for the day. Not only that, you had what's called show and tell, right? You could bring in anything of interest to share, to show, and to tell. Well, right here in the synagogue, the two VIPs are Paul and Barnabas. They have arrived, and they have a little show and tell. Their show and tell is about their Savior, about the risen Jesus Christ, we could entitle this sermon that Paul's about to give, he was a spokesperson here, we could entitle his sermon, The Great Work of God, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what's interesting as we're about to read here, Paul doesn't start with Jesus Christ. He starts with the mighty work of God in salvation history, a history that would have been very familiar to the Jews to whom he was speaking, as well as the God-fearers. God-fearers were Gentiles who worshipped God and attended the synagogue. But please note, as we're about to read, Paul is not just giving the Jews a rote history, okay? He's not just giving them a history to impress them with his Old Testament knowledge. This is not history trivia. Paul is about to give his brothers, his Jewish people and Gentile God-fearers, a way to look at their world, a way to look at their history that clearly sets the stage for the gospel. A world in which God is sovereignly in control of every event and every outcome. In other words, he wants them to know that God is in complete control of history. 
And from the beginning, God has been moving history towards his appointed goal, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does Paul want them to see? It's what he wants us to see as we read. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of fulfillment. When I say gospel fulfillment, I don't mean just fulfilling us. No. But it's also a gospel of fulfillment, a fulfillment of God's great work and promises in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets. And Paul wants his hearers to recognize the road signs and the flagpoles that have been planted in Old Testament scripture and not just drive on by. So we could break his sermon into two major divisions as to be outlined on the overhead. Number one, the great work of God explained, verses 16 to 37. That's the show part. And point number two, the great work of God proclaimed. That's the tell part. Followed by a powerful and sobering warning and appeal at the end. A sermon appeal that extends across generations to you and me. So let's start with point two, the sermon, the great work of God explained. Now let's read verses 17 through 37. I'll start with 16, actually. So God stood up, so excuse me, Paul stood up. God speaking through Paul. And motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he, that is God, led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he, that is God, put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he, that is God, gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he, that is God, gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Listen to this promise of the language. As he promised. I love how God-centered and God-centered this sermon is. It's God from beginning to end. It's God acting, God fulfilling. In verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? Am I not he? I am, excuse me, I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. 
And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, means gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also as is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, he will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he who God raised up did not see corruption. Church, all of history, all of history has conspired to send this message of Jesus Christ first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, both of whom, to whom God, excuse me, Paul, is speaking. But here's the sad reality, as we read. Those living in Jerusalem, during Christ's time, when Christ was alive, walking the earth, totally missed it. They missed the great work of God. They missed Jesus. They did not recognize Christ, nor understand the utterances of the prophets that were read every single Sabbath that testified to Him, that is Christ, and are fulfilled in him. Nor do they respond to John the Baptist, his proclamation of repentance based on what they knew and heard. In other words, they totally missed the flight balls and gave no pledge of allegiance to Christ. Church, we're here. And we can hear the gospel every Sunday and miss Christ and fail to bow the knee just because you are here this morning as a hearer doesn't mean that you have seen Christ or taken what you've heard to heart some of you have been here many years and I'm grateful that you have especially true of the youth you've grown up here in this church and you may say I am very familiar with Palm Vista on Sunday mornings. I know the vibe of Palm Vista. I got it. Four worship songs. And then, Corey, you usually do an announcement. I got that little spiel down to you, you know? Good morning, Palm Vista, you know? Welcome to Palm Vista. My name is Corey. If you're a first-time guest, you got it down. You know, after that, we give about a 45-minute sermon. You already know all of Al's jokes, his allusion to the Gators once again this morning. You got it. You know it's coming, man. You can predict it, right? And you know somewhere the gospel is going to be talked about. And frankly, you're pretty comfortable talking about the gospel. You get the gospel speech and lingo down. You see, it took 11 years 
of me coming to the school before I saw the flagpole. Doesn't mean it would take you that long. Probably a lot less, okay? I'm a little dense. But please, take no comfort in the familiarity of the surroundings or what you are hearing. May our familiarity be a sobering warning for us all. You can be blind and not even know it. And here's the irony. The radical God-centeredness of what Paul is saying. Even in the Jews' failure to see and believe in Jesus, even in their very rejection of him, they were fulfilling scripture. Verse 27. At this point in time, in Jerusalem about 33 AD, History did not take a wrong turn. Paul wants his listeners to know, and Luke who recorded this, that God was and is in complete control. To be assured that God had brought this about, Christ's rejection, his death, and yes, his resurrection. You see, this rejection of Christ did not throw God for a loop and send him scurrying around for plan B. Oh no, as if God was thinking, they rejected my son. What am I going to do? Oh, I know. I'll resurrect him from the dead. I'll show him. And I'll vindicate my son in my name. Oh, that he did. But this was no plan B. This is the plan here from the beginning, as we see in Scripture. And God's sovereignty as well is clearly seen in the following verses, 28 all the way through 37, which I just read. You see, although Christ was innocent... He was executed, crucified on a tree, on a tree representing the curse, the law, and its shame. But even this, we read in verse 29, was carried out according to what was written in Scripture. This was not plan B. But Jesus did not stay in the tomb. God, God raised him from the dead, verse 30, and he appeared to his disciples. This was no plan B. And then Paul says it this way in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. How? By raising Jesus. This good news, this gospel, is a gospel of fulfillment of God's very plan. Climaxing in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation as the very Son of God. This is what God had planned all along. And Paul brings out three different Old Testament texts from the Psalms and Prophets to make this definitive point. First, Paul quotes from Psalm 27 in verse 33. In this psalm, God is speaking to Israel's king. And he's claiming that Israel's king, he's claiming him as his very own son. We read these words from Psalm 2-7. You are my son. It's a key word. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, to understand why Paul brings in this quote, I think we need to understand a little bit about Old Testament times. That the Old Testament looked to a time 
when God would install his great king. This great king was the offspring or the seed of David who would rule forever. Who would be referred to as God's very own son. We find that in 2 Samuel 7, 12-14. Paul is saying here in our text that Jesus is that king. He is that Davidic king. He is God's son who will reign forever over the nations in fulfillment of Psalm 2-7. How? By virtue of the fact that he has been raised from the dead. By virtue of the fact that he is alive, he will reign forever as God's son. And that's the point of the next two quotations, as I'll read. Verse 34 and following. And as for the fact that he that is God raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. He quoted verse, excuse me, Isaiah 55, 3. You will not let your holy one see corruption. He's now quoting Psalm 16, 10. And then carrying on in verses 36 and 37, we read, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, purpose of God, no plan B, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he who God raised up did not see corruption. And because of this fact, the holy and sure blessings of David in Isaiah 55.3 are sure. What are these promised blessings that are sure because of Christ's resurrection? It is God's steadfast love and salvation, the benefits of which Paul is now going to proclaim as we approach the climax of the sermon. And now we're going to drill down and get a little more personal with point B, the great work of God proclaimed. Paul has shown us Christ, his death and resurrection in Scripture. Now he's going to tell us what it means for you and I and for all those who believe. We read in verses 38 and 39 these important, liberating, life-giving words. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness, that is Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul isn't just reciting history here. He's explaining it. And he wants God's story, his story, to be your story. All that's been said so far is bringing us to this point. So we're going to slow down now and we're going to look at the road signs, all right? And those road signs are this. Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection equal, here's the road signs, forgiveness and freedom. Oh, for all who believe. Let's start with forgiveness, point one. You see, this offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ wasn't just for the Jewish brothers, but for every person listening this morning. Why? Because our need of forgiveness 
is part of our universal human plight as broken, sinful creatures. And this forgiveness proclaimed and offered or told, it's striking as it is comprehensive. It is complete and it is only through Jesus. You see, Christ died for all our sins. As we read in 1 John 1, 7, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, all, everything, and anything that would lead, lead, excuse me, leave a stain of guilt upon you. Anything, any accusation of sin that would stick to you has been punished and purged through the atoning blood of Jesus. What does that mean? It means for all of us here who believe Jesus' substitutionary death in your place covered all your sins, all your offenses against a holy God. This means past sins. This means sins this morning committed driving here to, to Mighty Lakes Middle School. It means sins that we be committed when we leave, or even right now in your mind and heart, and those in the distant future as well. It means sins you committed as an unbeliever, as well as a believer. But let's go a a little further with this proclamation and offer. Not only is all sins forgiven, but each and every sin is fully, completely paid for. Not partially, but completely. So that you, all those who believe in Christ, are not punished or kept on being punished for your sin. You see, the law of God's justice that demands that I be punished for my sins protects me from being punished twice for the same sins. If Christ was punished on the cross for my sins, then justice will not allow me to be punished for those same sins. If you've been a Christian for a while, you may say, I know that, Corey. That's Gospel 101. But do you really, really know it? Or when you're honest, do you sometimes, maybe even often, just get that uneasy feeling that God is somehow punishing you for your wrongdoings? You see, a lack of understanding of the great work of forgiveness, a failure to read the road signs, leads to shame. And a shame that whispers in your ear, God is punishing you. Do you remember the story of Joseph, his brothers, when they visited him in Egypt? Remember there's a famine in Canaan, so they came on down to Egypt to negotiate grain for their family and father. Well, negotiations with their long-lost brother, Joseph, who they did not know at the time, who was Pharaoh's right-hand man, well, they turned a little sour. Things weren't going too well with the negotiations. Things weren't looking good as far as bringing grain back to the household. And this one man, Pharaoh's right-hand man, Joseph, held the keys, the power to all the grain of Egypt. 
And the brothers then deduced, God is punishing us for throwing our little brother Joseph into the pit and not rescuing him as a young boy. To quote Genesis 42:21, they said this, this, that is why this distress has come upon us. Joseph's brothers are saying this decades after that event. To quote John Enzor, author John Enzor, who comments on the story, but shame is persistent. Things committed 40 or 50 years ago can still persistently gnaw away at us. Can you relate? Whether it be 40 or 50 years ago or 40 or 50 days ago. Now for some of you here, this may mean that you have never repented of your sins. You've never come clean with God. Not really. And your guilt, it keeps popping up over and over. No matter how much you try to suppress or ignore that guilt that you experience. Well, if that is you, the only relief you're going to get is by confessing, which is agreeing with God about your sin and repenting, turning from your sin to your Savior to receive forgiveness. It's the only way. But most of us here, most likely, you have at one time sincerely confessed and repented of your sins multiple times. And what it means for us this morning is this. Learning to disconnect the dots. Let me explain that. Disconnect the dots between your sin and every hardship of life or trial that you are experiencing. As if you are repeatedly experiencing God's anger for your past behavior. It is not so. It is not so. Let me explain. John Enzor goes on to say in his great book, The Great Work of the Gospel, to share a story about his oldest son. When his oldest son was six years old, he was still new to riding a bike. Well, and he fell off his bike and scraped his knee. To pick up the story, quote, Earlier that day, I had disciplined him for some minor offense and had already forgotten about it. Nathaniel, that is his son, had not forgotten about it. As I wiped away his tears and tended to his bleeding knee, he looked up and said, I think God let me fall off my bike because of what I did this morning. I said, no, son, he did not. He let you fall off your bike so that you would learn to overcome hardships and develop a persevering character. When God wants to send a message that you have done something wrong, he does not send you a bike accident. He sends your mom and me to tell you directly and clearly. You do not have to guess. When he wanted to punish you for your sins, he sent his own son to die on the cross as your substitute punishment. Understand? End quote. I'm not saying, and neither is John Enzor, that sin doesn't have consequences. It does. Consequences that may last even a lifetime. But 
But if God is punishing us through the hardships of life, then the cross cannot be my complete atonement. And there is therefore no such thing as complete forgiveness. But if we understand the great work of the gospel and believe that we are forgiven in Christ, we will learn to disconnect the dots between life's trials and punishments for past sins. And we'll learn to connect the dots where we should to Christ's righteousness. And that leads to the next verse in our talk, point two, of freedom. The road signs of forgiveness and freedom. Verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This word here used for freed is the word often translated justified. A familiar word to us and to the Apostle Paul, certainly. In other words, the one who believes is counted as righteous because of Christ, not because of your own doing. The keeping of the law will never make you righteous because you'll never be able to keep it perfectly. But Christ did, and it's his perfect work of righteousness that is credited to you as if you lived the perfect life. Your sin is given or imputed to Christ, and he bore the punishment for that sin on the cross that you are forgiven. And Christ's perfect righteousness has been given or imputed to you. And you are justified before a holy God. Friends, this is the great exchange. This is the great work of the gospel. Are you set free this morning? Living in this freedom, which is being proclaimed today, but let's drill down a little deeper, shall we? What is exactly this freedom? Well, firstly, it's a freedom from condemnation. We talk a lot about freedom, don't we? At least in Christian circles. But I often wonder how much I or we are really experiencing this freedom of which we speak. We read in Jeremiah 31, 34 that the Lord's covenant with his people says this, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. I remember their sins no more. This doesn't mean that God cognitively, so to speak, forgets our sin. Oh, it's far better. He is speaking in a relational sense. sense. God knows our sins, yet does not in any way hold our sins against us by barring fellowship or withdrawing his love for us, for those who believe who are in Christ Jesus. I was speaking just to our Bible 45 class a couple of weeks ago about just the power of our spouse to affirm us. Why is their affirmation so powerful in marriage? Well, it's because the person that we sin against the most is our spouse. It's they who know our sins the most because they experience our sin on a regular basis. And yet where our spouse, even despite our sin, can look at us and affirm us, 
Oh, it's powerful. It's a work. It's a game changer. Things can be going rotten in my life. But if I know my wife who lives with me and often tolerates me, just like loves me and can affirm me, oh, what a difference that makes. How much more with God who knows our sin, has paid the penalty for our sin, and does not withdraw or withhold his love from us. But furthermore, he also removes our sins and throws them into the bottom of the sea, so to speak. As the Holocaust survivor, Corey Ten Boom, says, there on the seashore of that sea, God posts a sign. And that sign says, no fishing allowed. Is your conscience always fishing? Fishing for and pulling up past sins? Are you experiencing the condemnation for past sins? If so, you are not free. But you know what? Sometimes hearing this and knowing you are free and experiencing it can be two different things, can it? When my conscience condemns and blocks the way to God, I must be ready to stand on the truth of the gospel and contend for my faith and my righteousness in Christ. To give you an adapted example by way of John Enzor again. By faith, I look to the heavens and shout, Oh, happy day! Conscience shouts back, I object. I reply, on what basis? Conscience says, you did such and such. How can you possibly say that God didn't see it? I admit, I will not deny the facts. And God knows the tears that have been shed over it. But I ask, was it or was it not a sin for which Christ died? Conscience demurs, Well, yes. My faith takes the offensive. If yes, was it or was it not paid in full? Am I not declared righteous in Christ? Conscience pauses. I withdraw the objection. But faith presses further. And should you not also rejoice with me, for I have been forgiven. I am cleansed in Christ Jesus. Church, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet many a morning, oh, I feel like I wake up. My conscience is, is active. I wake up with the devil at the door. And accusations are flying for the moment. I haven't even got out of bed yet. And accusations are flying. And I must contend for what is true of me in Christ and what is proclaimed here. And I must say to the devil, not in my house. Not in my house. This house has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I'm contending for the faith, the great work of the gospel. What is being proclaimed this morning in Christ is forgiveness and a justifying grace that leads to freedom. A freedom that comes from knowing that what defines you is no longer your sin, but Christ's righteousness. But this freedom not only is a freedom from the condemnation for sins committed. But it's a flip side of the same freedom coin as well. And that's this. It's the freedom from having 
to be perfect. The freedom from having to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect because Christ was and is perfect on your behalf. This past year, I came across these words from one pastor that has spoke to my heart, words which I have personalized many times. It's these. Because Jesus was strong for me, I am free to be weak. Because Jesus won for me, I am free to lose. Because Jesus is someone, I am free to be no one. Because Jesus is extraordinary, I am free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for me, I am free to fail. Friends, these are the words of freedom being offered to us this morning through God's great work of the gospel. You don't always have to be strong. Say that to you out, each one of us, to singles who are living on their own this morning. You don't always have to be strong. To single moms, to stressed out mothers, to burdened fathers, you don't always have to be strong. Furthermore, you don't always have to be right. You don't always have to be right in every discussion, every debate with your parents, with your spouse, with your dissenting friend. You don't have to be popular or recognized for all you do. You can be anonymous. Furthermore, you can be a loser. A loser in the eyes of the world. A loser before your unbelieving family. And yes, even a loser in the estimation of other believers as well. Do you believe that? It's okay. With most churches, even what you believe or profess to believe in your theology, there may be others who would think you're a loser. Maybe a loser not because of your theology, but because of the association of churches that you're with. And accusations are flying. The church, what are you reading? For one, I'm not reading the blogs at least those slanderous blogs. You know what I'm reading? I'm reading these road signs. Oh, forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness and freedom. That's what I'm reading. Oh, yes, I'm a sinful man. I don't deny that. But I know I'm forgiven. I know I've been set free from the rule of other people's opinion about me, even if it's other believers as well. I'm not saying I've totally learned that. Okay, I'm battling. I'm in the process. Oh, I want to believe. I do. But you're not just free to fail. You know what else? You're just free to be average. That may be harder for some of you. Just to be ordinary and average. 
So moms, here's to less than tidy homes and to average meals. Students, here's to the occasional or even frequent C's. Here's to the air ball and basketball, the strikeout in baseball, that missed one-foot putt in golf. All right? That less-than-stellar work performance review. The less-than-fashionable clothes and lawns with a dollar weeds and dandelions. What does this all mean? That you can go for it. You can take risks. You can truly live. And yes, you can obey. And we are to obey all that is written. Because you are 100% free to fail. Or even worse for some, just be average. I mean, I was obsessing last night. I'm driving home. You know what I'm obsessing about? This sermon. It's hard, I mean, you don't make you late, but it's common, I think, for preachers. You look at your sermon Saturday night and going, what is this? I'd be happy this is average. Well, I'm just, no, I'm not happy it's average, but I mean, look at this point, average would be a good thing right now, okay? Well, I don't want to be average. I want a good sermon. And I, yeah, I'm assessing about it. And God's saying, read your manuscript, okay? It's okay. I'm up here. I'm giving it my best. But you know what? My best isn't good enough. But you know what? I'm not being judged here on my best. I'm being judged on Christ's best. And that Christ's best is perfection. Hallelujah. Do you see the freedom there? I want to do good. I want to worship God. Oh, yes, I want to obey Him. But I got to sound free. This very freedom allows me to pursue God with abandon, to take risks. Yes, for the gospel, for his very sake. I am free without the fears that attend the thought that I must get it all right or else be rejected by him. I am free. Christ has succeeded. He has won. He is my life and righteousness. I don't have to pretend. Oh, it's a freedom not only of having to be perfect or even above average in everything. It's a freedom from having to pretend to be so as well in Christ. Oh, church, that's freedom. Are you slowing down? Are you reading the road signs in Scripture, in your own life? They say Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection is your forgiveness and your freedom for all who believe. But church, please hear this as well in closing. Being rejected by God is a real possibility. In fact, it is a sure reality for all those who ignore or believe this work of God, the great work of the gospel proclaimed to you. So Paul leaves us with this warning and appeal. Verses 40 and 41. We read, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. What is Paul doing here? He's quoting the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1.5, and he's warning his listeners that they can miss and dismiss 
what is being said. It is possible to ignore the very work of God. It is possible to ignore the road signs that God has put in place. Indeed, the people of Israel failed to heed the warning of Habakkuk. They refused to recognize the impending invasion of Babylon. That it was God's doing. It was the judgment of God that was being ignored. And you know what? Those who scoffed, who did not recognize, who rejected God's work, they perished. They did not believe in the work of God, even though it was told to them before. Well, by use of this prophetic word, Paul is warning his listeners, and we, church, are being warned this morning, saying, beware. Don't ignore what God has done in fulfilling his word and raising Jesus from the dead. For it is through the crucified and risen Savior by which we have forgiveness and freedom. But you have a choice. You must choose. We all must choose. Like the people of Paul's day, what side of the prophetic word will you embrace? Those of the believing community, of the believing disciples who were free, or those of the unbelieving community who perished in captivity in their own sins. Friends, there is no plan B. That is a choice. Oh, may you choose. May you see and may you believe the great work of the gospel. Unbeliever, the signs and the flagposts of forgiveness and freedom are not hidden. They are found in his promised word and proclaimed to you through Christ. Will you believe? Believer, will you now live? Will you now live as those who are forgiven and free? Let's pray. As we pray, just be, be still. I'll invite the worship team to come back up at this time. Oh, dear Lord, as we conclude this sermon this morning, I ask that you would impart a faith to believe. For Lord, in the end, it is you who opens eyes. And Lord, I'm asking that you would open eyes now. And as we sing this last song, Jesus paid it all, we would not just be mimicking the word, so to speak. But Lord, that he would be imparting a faith to believe that that which we are singing is true. May we experience this morning the reality of those who have been forgiven and freed in Christ. And may that engender in us, may that conjure up in us, may that bring forth in us a declaration of praise this morning. So Lord, build us for those who are weak. Oh Lord, do that work of faith. Even now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing this concluding song.